You knew I'd be sporadic when you took this journey with me, but I'm here to win your affections again and give you the news, history, and ecology facts that you need to know about the Chesapeake Bay. I'm your host, Bert, and if you have an idea or questions for the show, you can email me at bertbaywide at gmail.com. That's Bert spelled B-E-R-T. Yes, I know the bay has been turbid lately. The dead zone's predicted to be bigger than usual, but let's dive into today's Baywide episode. I just got back from a week-long course. I was teaching on oysters and in an effort to give you an episode sooner than later. I'll be talking about just one small facet of the oyster boom that the Bay experienced after the Civil War and one town that transformed from a little-known marsh into the seafood capital of the world. We're talking about the city of Crisfield, Maryland. And if ever there was a town that exemplified the Wild West nature of the Oyster Wars and the fact that oysters were seen as Chesapeake gold, it's this city, Crisfield. Before Crisfield became known as Crisfield, it was known as Summers Cove. Before it was known as Summers Cove, it was known as Animesix River or the Animesix Neck, and this was the branch of the local Pocomoke Indian tribe. They were members of the Algonquin Nation, and they were the first inhabitants of the area, dating back to like ten to twelve thousand years ago, if you're on those numbers. But anyway, this was a small fishing village right on this river. And for those of you that aren't aware or have never been to this area before, it's on the eastern shore. Uh, it's the southernmost part of Maryland today, as southernmost uh, incorporated city in Maryland, and it's right overlooking the Tangier Sound on the Animesix River. Now, let's get in to how this marsh became the seafood capital of the world. And it all has to do with the oyster boom. But in order to get up to that point, let's first talk about how that happened. So, February 10th, 1663, my man Benjamin Summers, spelled S-U-M-M-E-R-S. Uh, that's only important later because he was a settler from Yorkshire, England. He arrived in Northampton County, Virginia, to claim his head right. Basically, he patented 300 acres, although in actuality it was only like 250 acres, but people can't read back then or write things down properly. Uh, anyway, he got this part, what would become known as Crisfield, and he was like, you know, this is a pretty sweet place. I'm going to patent another 200 acres of land, and I'm going to name it Muscata Hammock. And both of these lands are in present-day Crisfield. Once he got in the area... I assume kicked out the Native Americans. There's not real much information on this at this point in time. This is in the late 1600s. And in place, Summers Cove. It's a nice little cove, pretty protected cove. And there's actually still a marina in there today known as Summers Cove. It soon became a pretty major East Coast distribution center for seafood just because it had pretty easy access from the Tanger Sound. It was a pretty protected area. And by like... 1804, so yeah, I jumped ahead like 100 years because I don't have much information on it, but it was one of the pretty large or larger settlements in the Delmarva Peninsula. So there's about 100 buildings in 1804, and if we're comparing that to Salisbury today, a modern-day city with a lot more population than Crisfield, but Salisbury only had four buildings and Princess Anne had 40 buildings at that same time. Now, here's where it gets really big. Here's where the boom comes into play. In 1854, the state of Maryland was trying to figure out where all the oyster bars are in the Chesapeake. There was already a lot of things happening where the New Englanders were coming from like Long Island and things like that. 
to the Chesapeake Bay because they decimated their oyster population. They brought the dredge with them. Maryland started freaking out. They're like, no, you can't have the dredge. We can get all that uh, later. And I've referenced it in a few other episodes, but this is really just about Chris Field. The thing you need to know is Maryland was like, hey, we should probably do a survey of all the Chesapeake Bay oyster bars. And after the survey was done, there was a lot of oyster bars found in and around Summers Cove, a.k.a. Animistics, a.k.a. soon to be Chris Field. So that kind of confirmed what a lot of people that were local already knew is that, whoa, there are a lot of oysters to be had here. And the reason it wasn't a huge deal right now is because the Civil War was about to happen. But after the Civil War, here's why we have an oyster brew. I'm going to put it in like three steps for you real quick. So you just get a taste of it and we'll move on. All right. A lot of you know that Civil War had a big and extensive railroad network all over the country was happening at this time. And that was really pretty important for after the war because now we have this extensive railroad network we can use for trade and we can get oysters from this unknown area, if there was a railroad here, all the way across the country if we wanted to. So boom, that's a pretty big reason. Another reason, we just ended the Civil War and there's a big post-war boom in the economy. Like People had money to spend now and they could spend it on more luxurious things like oysters. And a third, and I think probably the most important one, there was a new canning process that kept oysters fresh longer. So now there was no limit on how far oysters could go. And when you combine that with the fact that New England didn't really have any oysters left, and the Chesapeake Bay just had this big survey done like a decade ago where we knew we had a ton of oysters, now the Chesapeake Bay was right for the taking. And Maryland, even though they were like, oh, you can't have a dredge, relented in, in 1865, said, okay, guys, you can have a dredge if you, you know, had that whole skipjack. And you can listen to my episode on skipjacks, learn more about that. And you had to sail under sail power only. So there was this guy. His name was John W. Crisfield. Do you already know what's going to happen? Yeah, the town's going to get named after him. He was Princess Anne attorney. And he was like, all right, I live in Princess Anne. I know there are a ton of oysters right over here to my left. And I also know that Crisfield, if it were like a legit town, if it had a railroad, we could bring oysters all over. So he was pretty instrumental in bringing the Eastern Shore Railroad, a branch of the Pennsylvania Railroad System, all the way to Summers Cove Seaport. And now a lot of people are like, oh, John Crisfield, he was just a lawyer. No, he was the chief promoter and happened to be president of the Eastern Shore Railroad. So this was all so he could make lots and lots of dough, big time money. And his friends and himself... They quietly acquired rights of way to Summers Cove so that they could build this railroad. Because Chris Field, my man Chris Field, knew that the region stood at the threshold of an economic boom in the seafood industry. And his partner, Michael Summers, first saw that the fleet of downcast Yankee oyster boats were going to be put into some serious work right here at the gateway of Tanger Sound, which was one of the richest oyster grounds in the world. So Chris Field and his partners hoped to make a killing in that railroad construction and land speculation. Now, from here on out, a lot of the information that I'm going to be pulling from is going to be the Oyster Wars, the Chesapeake book. Really great book. I highly recommend it. There are tons and tons of firsthand accounts and battles because I don't know if you knew this. There was a legit warfare between like oyster tongers and dredgers and between people from New England, people in Maryland, Marylanders versus Virginians. The entire book is just filled with the trove of information. I'm just going to pull about two pages from it page 16 and 17, if you ever want to buy it. It is uh, it is written by a man named John R. Winterstein. Uh, 
So the first locomotive came only within like a mile of the huge wharf. It was still getting built. It was still getting stretched out over to the sound. But Crisfield wasn't willing to wait for that. He would get a bunch of ox carts that would carry tons of oysters to the train station like a mile away. One quote that I see from this time noted that the oyster houses are rising as if by magic, not only from the marshes, but from the very water where only a few months ago vessels used to anchor. In just a short time, by 1872, Crisfield had the largest oyster trade in the state and provided employment for over 600 sailing vessels. He sent the oysters throughout the country to distant ports in Europe and Australia, and this was just a ricky docks along a, what used to be a salt marsh. And there was large heaps of oyster shells now that were just in the back of packing houses. They would just go right into the marsh right behind them. And land would literally be built right over that oyster marshes and just more. What is downtown Crisco today, people say, is all of the oysters built up in the marsh. So that is uh, really prone to flooding today. But basically, they were building land out of all these oyster shells. There was so much going out. During the 1870s, several million bushels of oysters were harvested annual just from the Crisfield-based boats. And every morning, except for Sunday, you weren't allowed to harvest on Sundays. You had about 20 to 30 railroad cars moving from the packing houses, heavily freighted with oysters. I don't really have an exact date on when Summers Cove became known as Crisfield, but a lot of people around the time said as soon as the railroad got to Summers Cove and and Mr. Crisfield stepped off of the rail car, the city instantly became known as Crisfield. So what Crisfield looked like then was just a cluttered, muddy town with rolled barrels, steam whistles, shouting people, and like a ton of steamboats would pull in every day, a ton of oxen, 2,000-pound beasts as they pulled loads of oysters, sweet potatoes and tomatoes also would be churning back to the steamboats from all the local farms, and... The best metaphor you can really think of this town right now is this is like a gold rush town. This was the get rich quick spirit. Everyone saw oysters as the new Chesapeake gold. They were lawless. Local life was quickly just a bunch of people from all over the country just trying to make a dollar and every type of crime that you could think of quickly came into the town of Crisfield. A bunch of people from New York that all the locals would call dandies and having no sea legs would bring their boats from like the Hudson River and these terrible boats that were totally unseaworthy and totally ignorant of how to operate the boats and they just like I know there's oysters like just a couple hundred feet off Crisfield I'm just gonna go out and get those and and the local folk well they stole from those kind of people a lot so they were super nice to them until they came back with their haul and then they just stole everything from them beat the heck out of them and sent them running and that was like what Crisfield was like literally all the way up until the turn of the 20th century. In the middle of the oyster season, uh, one of the guy's restaurants, John Burgess, had a large boxing ring in the middle, and it was the place that you would come to for violence. And Smith Islanders, so the island right to the west of Crisfield, they battled Virginia watermen in like no holds barred conflict all the time in Crisfield because they were all trading their oysters in Crisfield. So the Virginians were, the Marylanders were, and the feud between the Smith Islanders and the Virginians dated all the way back to the colonial period when the watermen first began to fight over fishing grounds and oyster beds. And they settled them a lot in these boxing rings, but the violence didn't just end in the boxing rings. There was a lot of murder happening right outside the saloons as well. So in an effort to curb the drunken lawlessness, the town of Crisfield voted to make the 
entire city dry, so no alcohol allowed, on December 8th, 1875. Prohibition, as you might know, did little to temper the town's salty rowdiness, though. And the oystermen quickly turned to walking saloons, where they would just be walking along the street, and a guy would have like a cart and have all the alcohol. Or they'd be speakeasies. The town's original jail or railroad boxcar wasn't big enough to hold all the drunk people during Prohibition. And so the city decided to spend all their money on a large log cabin jail to put all the watermen in so they could nurse their wounds and their hangovers. It was about during this time that Chris Field was seen as a place where the Methodists had to make a really big impact in evangelical efforts. So they would have summertime camp meetings by like wagons in the packing houses and the saloons and the wharves. And all while this was happening, they were trying to convert all of the watermen. But these revivals were really just seen as like a love fest by the uh, watermen, where there was just a circus atmosphere with tons of drinking and gambling. And just they would use it as kind of uh, an excuse to have a big festival. And uh, watermen always laugh. There's a good quote in here that says, uh, more souls were begot than saved. The town soon got national fame, and Harper's did an article on them in 1879 where they declared, Oysters. Oysters are everywhere, in barrels, and boxes, and cans, and buckets, to the shell, and out. Shockers in the packing houses, they could make as high as $3.50 a day for 20 gallons of oysters. And as soon as the shucker filled their bucket, they took it to a window and that opened to the packing house, and then a man, who was known as the skimmer, poured the bucket of oysters into a large strainer and washed them off with fresh water. He then scooped the oysters into a quart measure and poured them into a large tub of cold water. And a record was kept of every gallon of oysters handed through the window so that the workers would receive like a brass check for each gallon shucked. At the end of the day, the packers paid 20 cents for every brass check held by the shucker. Crisfield soon became the second most populated city in all of Maryland, second only to Baltimore. And throughout the 1870s, in, for instance, the 1877 to 1878 season, Crisfield shipped 25,000 barrels of shell oysters and 300,000 gallons of shucked oysters to Baltimore and New York. The dredge boats that were working in Crisfield and around the Sound, they were making about $2,000 a year, which was four times as much as the average salary in Maryland, which was about $500. By 1910, Crisfield had the largest list of sailing vessels of any port in the entire United States and became a port of entry. By this point, the peak of the oyster landings had passed. 1884 was the highest year on record, and every year after that was a little bit lower. And in the off-season, a lot of the Crisfield people were trying to figure out what they could be doing. So they started trying to market the blue crab, but it wasn't too successful because, well, the blue crab, unlike the oyster, couldn't be packed very easily and it was a lot more perishable than the oyster. So it wasn't really until the 1930s when mass refrigeration became available that the blue crab became like a viable economic product. And now, you instead of having just one oysterman, you would have a waterman. You would have a person who was dredging for oysters in the winter and then crabbing all summer, packing that up in refrigeration, sending it all over the country, and then even doing like pound nets in the fall. So it evolved because the oysters slowly started becoming harder and harder to dredge up. There was less that you'd get in each pool of your dredge. And that really became uh, an overfishing problem. And then by the 60s, 1960s that is, a couple of diseases started wiping it out even more. So the crab quickly became the iconic symbol of Chris Field. 
in the 20th century. So really think for a solid 30 or 40 years, Chris Field from like 1866 or so when it got the railroad was all about oysters, seafood capital of the world. Awesome, awesome, awesome. And then as that started slowly dissipating, the crab kind of started filling in that because now more and more people were willing to eat the crab and were like, oh, this is sweet. This is savory. Why is this different than all the other blue crabs that I can get up and down the East Coast? Probably because of the lower salinity waters of the Crisfield area. And today, Crisfield is like a lot of other towns on the East Coast or really the Eastern Shore of Maryland and Virginia. It had a booming town. It was where everyone would go. There was tons of packing houses. There was boat building. And now there is only about 2,726 people as of the last census. Compare that to the late 1800s when there was over 25,000 people. So as the oyster population slowed, so did the population of Crisfield. It slid from 11,000 in 1930 to 9,200 in 1950, all the way down to 4,100 to 1970, down to 2,700 that I just mentioned in modern day. What Crisfield was known for was wholesaling seafood. There was about 16 major wholesalers in 1940. There was seven in 1980. And it's hard to get an exact estimate on how many are today, but I'd guess between five and seven. Today, Crisfield's water tower has a giant red crab painted on the side. It is fully adopted the crab capital of the world persona. The docks and marinas all on the side are full of soft shell crab peeling floats and things like that. So a lot of the soft shell crabs that you eat come from Tanger Sound. A lot of those might get shipped out of Chris Field or come directly from Chris Field. And that does it for my talk about Chris Field and the boom that it experienced. And while we're on subject of crabs, the crab survey over the winter was released and it indicates that there is a 60% increase in crabs this summer. So we should see at the end of this summer, all of the juvenile crabs reaching adulthood and the crabbing season has already been great, but it's going to be even better towards the end of the summer. So that's pretty good news for everybody. All right, everybody. I am out. Thank you for being a listener. I sincerely appreciate you. of the week here you just gotta google a picture of john chrisfield all right it's like an old 1870s portrait of john chrisfield where he's just kind of looking slightly off the camera and it really the picture says a lot and this is kind of the caption for this meme of the week the secret part of the show where i explain to you in excruciating detail a meme and here it is it always has to do with the show look up that picture of john chrisfield i'm telling you and here's the caption when you're just trying to make a quick buck, but everyone keeps murdering each other in your city. All right. Cause this is the look that John Crisfield has in this. He's like, yeah, I guess I'm happy, but I'm like kind of panicking. There's a lot of panic in his eyes. I feel like he's a little bit uncomfortable during this portrait. And I bet it's because a bunch of people kept on getting washed up in Summer's Cove area where his town was with like their skulls bashed in because of the feud that was going on between all the oystermen because 
they were like, oh, I got to get all my oysters to this town of Crisfield, but I'm going to steal from everybody and bash their heads in. And Crisfield was pretty much responsible for that because he incentivized this mass hustle to get your oysters to the rail cars so he could ship them all out. So I think he's like, oh, God, what have I done? But also he's like sitting pretty lavishly because he's making a ton of money. Buku bucks, as they say. All right, everybody. I'm out.